welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a social conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Today, we're talking about social norms. Social norms are accepted standards of behavior of social groups. People know to be quiet in a library. That's a social norm. My kids went to an outdoor high school in San Diego. On a rainy day, they would not be caught dead with a raincoat or umbrella at school. That was simply not done. That would make them stand out. Getting wet on a rainy day was the social norm. Social media has introduced a massive new form of digital social peer pressure and perceived social norm. A post with many likes and comments may make people feel like they need to conform. And if they don't, it'd be quiet. Depending on what you're clicking and searching, it may seem everyone is drinking alcohol or using marijuana or having sex. But is that true? Is everyone really drinking alcohol and using drugs? And with that, let's hear the question of the day. Hello, Dr. Lev. Thank you for bringing us High Truths. My name is Stacy Childs. I oversee a youth leadership program in California called Elevated, which is a project of Say San Diego. Elevated high school leaders aim to improve community health, safety, and substance abuse awareness among youth. The youth leaders I work with always talk about mixed messages they receive in their environment. They see the normalization of marijuana, psychedelics, and vaping. At the same time, we want to protect their brain development. Our question is, what is the best way to combat this culture, and what are the social norms we should be promoting? Thank you, Stacey, for your question and supporting the podcast. To answer your question on social norms, I have the father of the social norm theory himself, Dr. Wes Perkins. Dr. Perkins is professional sociology and project director of the Youth Health Safety Project. He does research and provides strategies to reduce risk-related behaviors among youth and young adults throughout the United States and internationally. He developed the social norms theory of changing risky behaviors and edited the book titled The Social Norms Approach to Preventing School and College-Age Substance Abuse. His work has been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, CNN, NPR, New York Times Magazine, Newsweek, and Time Magazines. Wow. And now he can proudly add High Truths and Drugs and Addiction podcast to his media accolades. To learn more about Dr. Wes Perkins, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Perkins, welcome to High Truths. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Dr. Lev. I'm very excited for our conversation. I have the developer of a brand new theory, social norms theory, to talk to. We're going to learn so much about that right from the source. But you're a sociologist, right? So I am. How did a sociologist come about to study the issues of alcohol, drugs, social norms? Tell us about your path. Yeah, uh, well, uh, when my uh, graduate training in, in sociology is part of it, um, I was a public health service trainee. That was part of my education uh, within the, the uh, PhD, master's and PhD program at Yale. And um, so I was a public health service trainee. And so that put me on that that track, if you will, toward uh, public health. And also one of my major specialties was social psychology and youth, adolescent and adult development. So those blend over a lot with psychology. I do a lot of work with psychologists um, and I teach social psychology. 
but uh, but as a sociologist, come at it a little more from the uh, side of normative influences, uh, cultural systems, and how that influences our behavior. And then, of course, I was very much interested in health uh, health concerns. And I um, was also uh, I did a an internship or a year internship training as part of my graduate education in an alcohol and drug clinic in. Uh, in, in a mental health uh, clinic in Connecticut. Uh, and so I had a lot of experience kind of working firsthand, did a lot of work with children of alcoholics too. And, but the children were teenage, late uh, adolescents, young adults and so forth. So in that context, I was already interested in this before I finished my uh, PhD and I was doing a uh, work on age development and and cultural influences and so forth. So that's set me up for it. But it was really when I came to be a college professor that I, I got into the work in detail about uh, risk behaviors with with late adolescents, young adulthood, and particularly with college students. But we may talk about that more as we go along. So that's that's the basics of who I am. And so it sounds like I, the government kind of put you on this very path when you were very young. Yeah, actually, That's they did. Going. They did. That's true. <laughs> yeah. um, so you are, I call you the father of the social norms theory. So tell us, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah, well, the father of it was, I think that was dubbed that by a an article in the Los Angeles Times a long time ago, um, because while myself and, and, uh, and a clinical psychologist at in my institution, Alan Berkowitz, we initially discovered the phenomena of of massive misperceptions when we were doing some research on on studying alcohol problems at our institution. Um, and we were studying uh, college students. We were at an institution like many schools in the Northeast where where alcohol use was was a significant problem. Heavy use was a problem and so forth. And um, and had already known that the alcohol was the biggest alcohol abuse was the biggest problem for uh, for college student populations, and it still is, and so forth. So we were interested in doing that and and studying patterns and conducting surveys uh, in doing that. And at the time, we stumbled upon almost this serendipitous finding that that while um, that that the problem rates were substantial. The 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 actual majorities of students on campus were not uh, were not uh, consuming at risk levels were not a problem and so forth, but they thought everybody else was. Is that, that is so, that true even for the party schools? That's true for every school we've studied across the country, and I I, I tell every every place that I speak about this, I will bet my paycheck that that there'll be a massive misperception. A lot of schools think, oh, not us. We're we're in the top 10 on the Playboy list of heavy drinking schools or something. But but it's a, remarkable how hundreds and hundreds of schools will say that. Uh, and and how can they all be on the top 10 list? There is this notion out there that and, and it's certainly true that there are many schools who struggle with a problem of substantial alcohol misuse in their populations. But again, it's not the majority of students. It's uh, and so consequently. But what we simultaneously find when we were asking students what they thought their peers did, what was most typical, what they thought the norms were with regard to behaviors and with regard to attitudes, they consistently said in in our early studies that they thought everybody else was doing much more than what would really be revealed by the aggregate of personal behaviors and so forth. So it, it was a curious finding at, at first because nobody else was really asking those questions when we first, uh, I say, almost stumbled onto this. But we thought about it quickly and thought, well, this might have some prevention uh, value to it and so forth. And from there, um, I took it further and developed a whole kind of theory of why these misperceptions emerge and how we can apply them, the dynamics of them just using uh, my uh, the, the general information out there about peer influence and how powerful it is, but then taking into consideration, are we talking about the actual influence of peers or are we talking about what we perceive to be our peers, what we perceive our, our peers to do? And in the long run, we, we find consistently that not only peer influence is extremely powerful, but it's the, the perception of peers that trumps the actual 
behavior and attitudes of peers. So uh, I developed theory and background, and then a number of, of uh, people in the field began to creatively apply this approach. We did it on our own institution, other, other prevention uh, health educators, prevention workers, and, and researchers began to apply another uh, at the beginning, um, high, uh, college and university settings began to get positive results uh, in um, in introducing interventions from this theoretical point of view. And then it began to move into high schools and middle schools and take into other populations as well. We've done work in with uh, the U.S. Air Force, for example, and their, uh, their uh, young adults in the Air Force because they were having problems. And it's been applied to other kinds of uh, substances uh, and the same patterns emerge that there's a, however big the problem is, by far it's overestimated. And, and but that overestimation has a perverse, if you will, uh, uh, feedback effect on individuals who are engaging in the behavior, encouraging them, them to do it more. And it also, um, encourages or discourages, I should say, those who are not engaged in the misuse or risky behavior to not speak up, to be passive bystanders instead of active bystanders. So it, it prevents them, or at least detours them in part from intervening. So this misperception that that is out there is, I, I liken it to a uh, in a in a disease model sense that it's it's a it's contagious it it's passed around to other people in conversation and it in the long run discourages uh more of the healthy behavior that could be taking place and it encourages the risk behaviors because that's what we think our peers want us to do that is fascinating. And Wes, you're like my new favorite person of making analogies of infectious disease. My listeners know I'm always coveting COVID and STIs and um, and other infections. Well, it's important. I I, I refer to uh, people. One of the problems in, in the ways that this misperception is spread is that even though uh, people who uh, do not engage in the misuse of whatever substances we're talking about and people who uh, even would never engage in it. Some may not, are not engaging, but they might, you know, and they get influenced by the misperception and, and, and encouraged to go along with what they think the group uh, thinks is, is, is most valued and so forth. But uh, uh, those who would never get involved, uh, as I've said, they stay silent. But one yeah. of the things that they also have is they are infected with the misperception to keep with the disease models you're saying. They're carriers of the disease. Uh, in the sense that in their talk with other students, uh, whether whether we're talking it's a middle school or a high school or a college population or new cadets, uh, uh, airmen in the, entering the Air Force or any of the other places we've studied this, um, they even if they wouldn't do it when they, uh, uh, in essence, begin to interact with, <clears throat> excuse me, the new students, they say, well, I don't do this, but everybody else goes out and gets hammered on Wednesday nights, or I don't take this substance, but most of the people here, are, you know, I don't use cocaine, but most of the students here are using cocaine, So, which is an incredible misperception. We know that that while it's, cocaine use is a problem, I'm just using this as an example, the vast majority of students in college populations are not using it. Certainly that's true in high schools and middle schools as well, but it's remarkable that this phenomenon of the the people who are not using will say I don't do it, but everybody else does. And to that, and that's extent, so true. I have that in my own family. My when my daughters were in college, everybody's using marijuana, but you know, and they don't. And then you're right; they're going to be quiet about it because if they perceive marijuana use as a social norm, they're not doing it. They're just going to be quiet. And they exactly that's what, all right. Exactly. Um, and they may even pick up the drink and hold it so and, and contribute to the misperception that everybody out there at this party is drinking or something like that, if that's the because they they think everybody else is and they're more comfortable holding the cup or, or, or something like that because of their misperceptions. And, and then when they talk about it with other students in classes or in social situations, you know, and they say, well, I don't do this, but most of the students do it. it, it the RAs, resident advisors in, in college populations, uh, in the residence halls and so forth, are typically 
for the most part, models of good behavior in their own sense, but they'll tell their students, well, I don't do this. We, uh, you know, we're not supposed to be doing this, but most students here will do this. They can, they infected with a misperception, they pass it on, and then it has a, a toxic effect on others. So the social norms model of prevention would be for that RA to say, I don't use it. And guess what? You know, 78% of college uh, kids don't use it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's saying, look, the best research we have, the best evidence we have, and uh, most schools have the data. They've, it's the best kept secret that the data about what the actual patterns are of attitudes and behaviors is, um, I liken it to vitamins. Uh, you know, it, it can be good for students to know the data, um, but we keep the the information about the the positive majorities in, in the in the medicine bottle. Keep it on the shelf till the shelf life expires. You know, it's a, it, until those students leave and they never hear about themselves and their their peers and how many of them are in fact uh, holding positive attitudes and exhibiting positive behaviors. I love that. I heard you speak as part of an ADAPT conference on teaching primary prevention. Um, they were doing this for HIDA, the high intensity drug trafficking areas. And when I, I heard your video, I thought, wow. And I, I started incorporating uh, the social norms approach to primary prevention teaching. So thank you. Yeah, um, now, uh, when you talk about that, I've heard you say you don't like scare tactics that they don't work you called it health terrorism is mm -hmm. is that really true because when I, I think it may not work for some people but i think when i remember me as a little girl if you you know told me that your brain's on drugs and on an egg you know this is your brain on drugs and they show an egg in a frying pot that i first of all i didn't understand it but when i did i was that scared me i it prevented me from you know doing anything risky so maybe it works for some people, but not for the majority. What do you, what's your theory on that? Well, I mean, the, the, there's a, a lot of, uh, of work that it, uh, a lot of research out there that uh, looking at scare tactics and scare strategies and, and, um, and the evidence of ha them having a positive effect is pretty thin. Uh, the, occasionally you might find a study that shows some evidence, but it's really rare to, to show the, the, the kind of meta studies of, of, of scare tactics interventions and all are, are not positive in their approaches and so forth. Um, and uh, I might not be popular in saying this, but like the D.A.R.E. programs were examples of that initially when, when they were coming in and talking about all the problems and all the things that were students were doing and so forth. They were good for police relations with the schools and the students, but they didn't reduce the risk behavior problems. And there's been several studies demonstrating that. They've more recently started to incorporate, uh, from what I've seen, some uh, uh, some training and emphasis in talking about peer norms and the actual norms, which is the, the way to go, as I would suggest. But to simply, uh, to just to, uh, to to uh, launch information about don't do this or these are the bad things that are going to happen to you. Well, yeah, I, I can appreciate as you're saying, well, I, I didn't do any things. I didn't do any of those things either, but but it really wasn't, I, you know, I was shown in uh, growing up in, in uh, middle schools and high schools, all, the black lungs and in, in the formaldehyde bottles. And we all <laughs> went through that, you know, yeah. um, but that didn't stop, stop um, uh, youth from smoking and that sort of thing. What uh, I would suggest the, the the real downturns. Part of it is regulation, and part of it's limiting the types of advertisements and so forth. But also, um, when we saw the the real downturns, and here's where kind of social norms mix with and mixes with legislation and social control, mm -hmm. um, is when we started, for example, limiting. Um, space in restaurants. Uh, I can remember when when there would be a little uh, two, one or two tables at a at a at a restaurant uh, sequestered off as smoke free, and then the, there would be people asking for those tables, and there would uh, and so they'd make a bigger cordoning it off, and so forth. And there would still be more people asking for those, and so and they'll line and the, the, then they'd have a small room, and so but there would be a line of people waiting for the small room. Until we finally emerged to the point where restaurants were making the big room for the non-smokers and then finally um, uh, saying, well, we're just going to eliminate uh, smoking 
in in totality in the restaurants. The point of this is what's going on there. We're making it visible who the majority are. And they people could finally see this. It's not the black lungs scaring them, but they can see that most people don't want this. They don't want it in their face. They don't want it. They don't think it's good for other people and so forth in a kind of what I would call a visual histogram of the distribution of people as they looked and saw the majorities in restaurants and those areas were not choosing to go to the smoking areas. So consequently, that's when we saw this kind of big shift in, in society and in a, in the in the patterns of things, when we were, are able to grasp the fact that the, the majority are not in favor of this and the majority don't practice it. So the, the other thing I would say about the question about scare tactics is, when we say, I also call it a kind of death education, uh, don't do this or you're going to die, don't do this or you're going to die. Certainly, I'm not diminishing at all the tra great tragedies that happen when somebody overdoses and the deaths that occur, or when somebody's drinking and driving and the deaths that occur that way. Those are major killers of young adults and so forth. And I understand that. I'm not diminishing that. We have to be concerned about it and so forth. But but the problem with just uh, making those scary warnings is, and those messages is, uh, that they're based on a behaviorist model that uh, uh, in psychology <clears throat> that's, you know, based on, well, we're going to avoid uh, punishments and and seek pleasures. You know, if something's going to harm us, uh, we're not going to do it. If we're told, don't put your hand on a hot stove burner um, uh, or you'll burn your hand, you know, uh, we don't want to do that if there's those kinds of warnings and so forth. And, and, and moreover, we can learn vicariously, humans can, to not uh, do things by seeing other people being punished. We don't have to cross over the invisible fence line like dogs do when they get trained not to cross over the line and so forth. But we can watch others experiencing those punishments and decide and, and not do it. That's all true. And that's kind of the behaviorist model in psychology of learning through rewards and punishments or the punishments of others. And, and we're, we're creating warnings about that. However, psychologists will also tell you in the behaviorist, those using the behaviorist model, that um, if if people are going to learn from either rewards or punishments, well, they it has to be fairly consistent. It has to be fairly consistent for that learning to take place. So consequently, um, if a, a dog or cattle bump into a fence and they're shocked by it, um, they learn quickly not to cross over the fence or the invisible fence line. But if that fence was only turned on once or twice a year, they would just be walking over it all the time, even though some are are shocked by it. That's the same thing with with humans who are animals too, and learn in some of the same ways. That if we only uh, if it only happens rarely, that we tend not to learn from it, and we can say, "Don't do this, or you're going to die." But the real truth is, most of the people who engage in that behavior, really, the, uh, the overwhelming number of people who engage in most of that behavior are not going to die from, from doing it. And so when we show this and say, don't do this or you're going to die, it, it doesn't translate and shape our behavior as we, th and, uh, we think it should. And moreover, we can ask students, we did in focus groups, what do you think we should do? And they'll say, show us blood and guts. Show us the horrible things. And, and yes, we create messages, images, and so forth. And they voyeuristically look at those. But in the long run, they don't translate it. It's, it's, it's not going to happen to me. It's probably not going to happen to me. It's That's not going to happen. And and most of the people they see engaging the behavior, it's not happening to. Wait, so, so are you saying kids want to see the, 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 the black lungs and the deaths? Well, I don't think they are, you know, they're they're past the the age of the black lungs and the formaldehyde bottles. But, you know, they'll say, show us the uh, the horrible things that happened, the, the the carnage on the highway or the, you know, the crashed car and those kinds of things. Um, but uh, and they'll voyeuristically look at them. But in the, in the end, how many times will they get in a car with somebody who's been drinking or or they they're drinking uh, and driving themselves? They're probably going to make it home uh, home that night, okay. And I don't mean that 
uh, please anyone out there listening, I don't mean that to say it's okay. It, obviously not. I've said it's a major killer of, of youth and young adults, and we we would not want that to happen to any of them. But the truth of the matter is that it, it that it, it, the likelihood that that negative punishment is going to happen to them is relatively small. And the interesting thing is when we use those strategies or uh, um, and it doesn't work, often prevention people will scratch their head and say, what should we do? And the kind of response is, let's make it scarier. But the problem is in making it scarier, you're making that result, whatever you're showing as the result, even less likely, even less frequent. And so it's less connectable to people in terms of, is it really going to happen to me? Um, I would argue you're better off if you really want to use some kind of negative consequences as a deterrent, uh, it, it should be portraying something that happens rather frequently and consistently um, in order for, for it to have some kind of deterring effect. Interesting. So um, the, what about... The, yeah. What about the reality? Like there's one pill can kill, you know, DEA message about fentanyl. That's mm -hmm. true. That is um, true. Yeah. Uh, so what do you, you know, is, is, is that scare tactics? That's just reality. Yes. And, and, well, and in a sense, um, fentanyl is a tricky uh, drug in this sense. And, and, um, uh, I think the verdict is out in in what kind of messaging we can do for that. But it, it's certainly the case, and 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 young people need to be educated about it. But for one thing, many times they'll they'll take it not knowing what it is, and and, and certainly in younger uh, uh, youth uh, that that's the case. They're they're taking it not knowing it. So it's uh, while they're they're taking a, you know a substance that they don't know what it is, and they shouldn't do that. They're not. They don't know exactly what it is, and so that's a problem. And and for the whole community to be educated about that is certainly important. But uh, but in a in a traditional sense, um, um, if they if they're taking just whatever the substance it is, just like being handed a drink or being handed another drug or hand, uh, being handed uh, you know uh, something that to vape or whatever, um, if they think that oh. Everybody here is doing that tonight. Um, it's okay because everybody else thinks it's okay. I don't, not sure I want to do it, or I don't, I really don't want to do it. But everybody else is expecting me to do it. That then they get pushed into that, and that is the big misperception that we really have to counter because we know peer pressure and peer influence is so strong. You know, the prevention field acknowledges that, but it, yeah. it, there's, uh, in general, many do not acknowledge the misperception of the peers. What's, what's, the, difference, what's the difference between peer pressure um, and social norms? Is there a difference there? Well, there's not. The, the distinction is there are social norms out there that guide our behavior. And, and, uh, and so... There are social norms out there, we could say, like driving on the right side of the road. Uh, and those are clear norms. And the vast majority of people do that. And we get in the car and we drive that way because everybody else is doing it. And it does influence us. Um, and But um, the, the distinction here in what we call the social norms approach is, is making that distinction between what is what are the actual norms and what are the perceived norms. Uh, because what we're talking is what's guiding us in the lanes of substance use, to use the analogy, is not the, the actual paint on the highway and not the reality that 99.9% .9 of people drive on the right side of the road. It's, it's, it's our perception of where they're uh, what lane they're in and so forth um to go back to the to one of the kind of uh, posters that uh, I've used in in examples and critiques of prevention strategists by the way uh, often will contribute to the misperception uh, a poster uh, that was put out um, for students in a, a anti-smoking uh, a poster uh, many years ago in, in an Illinois initiative. And it had a whole bunch of fish on the page. And they were all kind of gray and withered, but they had dead cigarettes in their mouth. And they were all swimming one way. And then they had one brightly colored, healthy fish swimming the other way and not smoking. And, it, and the tagline was, dare to be different. 
And, you know, when you think about that, the message of that, telling everybody that all the rest of your peers smoke, but you've got to dare to be different. Um, and, you know, the D.A.R.E. program itself was kind of in that message genre at the beginning. Um, and and what we really need to uh, give the message to is if it's the fish or the imagery of that, you got to swim with the current, but you got to know which way the current's going. And we should have been showing, you know, 90 uh, or in, in true statistical terms, we should have been showing at least 80 percent of those fish being bright, colorful fish swimming one way and 20 percent um, being withered up and smoking swimming the other way. But we we distort the image uh, in the in the wrong direction, and so that's the difference. And so, for example, in putting it back to actual research, I've conducted a lot of research in now in in high school, middle school populations, in college populations, and so forth, where we'll look at what's and and we can see that there are differences in the actual norms at different schools. I mean, in some schools, use of a drug is higher than it is at other schools. And when we've got a lot of schools we can compare, we can see what influence the actual norm has uh, on the individuals. And sure, if you go to a school where there's higher use, you're likely to use more yourselves. There's more availability. There's more students doing it. It's more, even more visible. But the, the key factor, the, the biggest explanatory factor is what the students in their own minds think their other peers in their school are doing. That, for example, explains about 90% of the normative influence, if you will, the perception of the norm, and 10% of the normative influence is what's actually going on uh, uh, among others in that school. So the social norms theory um, of, for primary prevention is to dispel the perceived norms that people have and replace them with the actual norms that model good behavior. That's right. And and can you do that uh, simply or are you going to change people's minds overnight or with one poster during Alcohol Awareness Week or something like that about what the real norms are? No, you have to produce a, a lot of information about what the true norms are um, because they're getting a lot of misinformation from the, the forces that cause those misperceptions. Uh, come at kind of three levels, as I, I argue that that there, part of it is psychology. I told you I was a social psychologist, and both there's psychology and sociology going on here. Um, that part of it is the brain plays tricks on us when we observe things and we don't know people well, the people in public and so forth. We see them do things, and we can't account for it or contextualize it. We tend to think they do it. That's what they do all the time, or it's typical of them. So when we see somebody engaging in high-risk behavior, which and we notice visible behavior, those kinds of things are very visible or, and so forth, we, we tend to think that that's what they are doing and uh, others around them are doing more than is the case. So the brain is, there's attribution errors is what we call it. And so that's going on. And then the conversation that takes place is about what, those extreme behaviors. So I always say, you don't hear someone, a, a young person get up the next morning after a party, after the prom or after a college party or whatever age level and come downstairs and say, boy, I can't believe how many people were sober last night. They don't say that. And uh, you know, when I say that, usually people will smile or chuckle because it sounds funnier. I can't believe how many people were abstaining last night. They don't say that even though it's the statistical reality, you know, youth in. in I think, in, I think that's true for, for <clears throat> negative things in general, right? Like you'll have, I know that I'll have a great day. I'll see 30 patients. You know, I, I did good. There's one patient that was particularly belligerent and I like, you know, ruin, you know, ruin your day. And you're, it's dismissing the 29 other people who are really nice. That's right. And so to take your, your example. And so what happens is you go into the, into the coffee or lunchroom with your colleagues and you talk about that and they say, oh yeah, there was that one for me. Mm -hmm. And, and the conversation with, which I was saying is another thing that amplifies the misperceptions at whatever level and what other context. And you're right. It happens in a, with regard to a lot of things. The conversation is all about those 
who were the extremes and often the problematic ones. And it, it does this, uh, by the way, this uh, approach now has been applied uh, much further than just alcohol and other substance misuse. It's been applied to, we, we've uh, done work on bullying and uh, yes, bullying occurs. It's a serious problem. About 25% of kids in schools engage in bullying to some degree, but wow. it's not the norm. And, and yet most students think that oh, everybody else does this and, and so forth. And they remain quiet, they remain silent and they're the carriers of the, uh, the misperception again and, and so forth. And they won't intervene in bullying situations because they think they're loners in this. Um, and it happens, it happens with seatbelt use, uh, for example. I was just gonna give a car example because you're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off and they're like, uh, everybody's such a bad driver. It's like there was one bad driver, not everybody. Yeah, exactly. Right? And and uh, we, we've got data out there, studies now showing that youth will I mean, at least use their seatbelts 80, 90 percent of the time. But they don't think they think others use them maybe half the time, maybe less than half the time and, mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And so while that while they may buckle up when they get in the car and drive, are they going to ask the person in, in the other seat or in the back seat to put the seatbelt on if they don't think anybody else does it? They don't think anybody else cares. They don't want to embarrass themselves and others by telling them to put the seatbelt on. Uh, because because of the misperception, so it applies in a lot of areas. It, we, we we've seen it in a, uh, and done research on it. It applies to um, sexual assault uh, behavior uh, and and so forth, and other kinds of violence. And then it it can apply to a lot of other kinds of research in public health. There's studies going on with hand uh, hand washing, um, with um, bed net use uh, for prevention in in other countries with mosquitoes and all kinds of things like that. It is really this approach has expanded dramatically in the public health area um, and in other topics in other other countries too. So. Um, it, but the phenomena, so the last part of this uh, that I was saying, so it, it talk expands it. You know, I always say you don't um, uh, you don't uh, uh, go to a party and come home afterwards. And, uh, you, uh, you, and the talk is about how many people were using the substance or doing this or doing that and so forth. They're, they're not talking about how many people weren't. But and you don't act like an anthropologist and run to the bathroom and write field notes about what everybody did or like a, a, a survey sociologist and pass out surveys at the door to get an accurate cross section of what was going on. You just talk about the extremes. But then the final part of this is the, the cultural level where um, uh, of course we have ads, we have entertainment that accentuate the, the risky behavior and so forth. But in addition, the, the news, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, and the news, what does it report? The, the, the one or two or 3% who are, are experimenting with a new designer drug or the 5% who are uh, uh, using the uh, the cocaine or the uh, uh, or the 5% who got in a, a big fight at the football get drunken fight at the football game after uh, after the the uh, football game or something um or the 20% who have clinically been been identified at, at risk in terms of their behaviors and and, and so forth uh, i'm talking about among youth and so forth and so what happens is well when you say oh yeah let's say with college students oh yeah um, there's 20, 30% uh, have been identified as, as binge drinking or 10% gotten involved in a big incident or 5%. Oh yeah, all those, uh, the lots of college students do that. Oh yeah, most do. Oh, everybody does. It's like that game of telephone you used to play as a kid when it's passed along and talk about it gets changed completely. You don't remember, but you remember the story about how problematic it was. Uh, but of course, we don't hear the news stories about 97% of the students never get never using that design, new designer drug, uh, uh, whatever it is, or 95% uh, not using cocaine, or or 80% not being at at uh, risk uh, in in a youth or or young adult population, and so forth right. and so on. We just because that's the way the story is told. We, that's interesting. And, that's kind of like you know, Dr. Uh, Bob Dupont. Um, he's uh, our previous uh, drug czar for the United States and psychiatrist. He has a one choice program and he emphasizes what you're saying and showing in a graph form that over time, more 
kids are choosing to make the one choice to protect their brain of not using any drug, not nicotine, alcohol, or any drug. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so he's, you know, he has the data from 12th graders over time and the number of 12th graders over time who choose not to use any of these addicting substances is going up. Yeah. And so to the extent that we can publicize that and talk about that, um, and we kind of talk about that as trending norms, sometimes if you have a measure, one of the problems is uh, problems is, is that if you're oriented toward um uh, needs assessment. You want to promote the uh, the 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 biggest uh, use the measures that show the biggest problem and so forth. And I understand that because you want to get support from politicians, from parents uh, to do interventions and and really address the problem. But at the same time, um, you can choose measures. You know, have you ever used alcohol in your lifetime? And you're going to find majorities of a popular 12th graders uh, will come into that category. Um, but but if you say, well, what about in a typical week or in the last 30 days or in the last, you know, at the last whenever you go to a party or in, you're in this situation, you know, overwhelmingly, the vast majority of populations and youth ages and so forth. Um, are are not going to be in those categories, and we should be using those those kinds of measures and talking about the the positive majorities. But just back to your example, um, the fact of uh, so taking just the twelfth graders, well, that's the highest end of the high school. So uh, you know you're you're it's pushing it, but but even there, we see as you say that that the the, the percentage who are not using has been, has been growing. And that's an important kind of thing because because students will respond to what what we would call about trending norms that it's becoming the norm because it's it's becoming more popular and you want to follow which way the peers are going so we might as well emphasize that as well and so I think it's a good thing to be saying that yeah. So Stacy Charles is a prevention specialist in San Diego. She works with youth, and she has a question. Okay. Um, she's asking, what is the best way to combat normalization of drug use? I realized hearing you talking, that's what the marketing people like, oh, everybody prefers Coke over Pepsi or everybody's drinking beer and everybody's smoking weed. Um, so the industry that's selling you, promoting is using these, you know, perceived social norms or filling your head with social norms that may not be true in order to sell you whatever it is that they're selling it works for anything and there is i think a movement in the united states now to normalize drug use um and so she's asking what's the best way to combat that yeah well the best way to combat that uh, from my point of view or the social norms approach strategy is to essentially um do what the the marketing and media advertising people are doing Uh, the advantage the only difference is we're telling the truth and making that point, it's another type of truth campaign. You know, the truth campaigns had some had some yeah. positive effect with them, but it's another type of. But it's we're telling a pervasive truth, and so communicating uh, uh, the what the actual norms are, both attitudinal norms, what 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 students or young people or adults in general think is is right, um, and what the, what they actually do, the behavioral norms, communicating both of those with credible evidence. And giving the frequently providing that information, that is the dosage has got to be high because the dosage of misinformation about what the norms are subtly and almost directly is, is very large. So you have to have a lot of credible information. And we have we, we need to give the people, uh, whereas usually the information about the source is a little small tagline down in the bottom of, of a of a let's say a poster or a message about, but I always say make that bigger and tell tell people uh, tell young people how many people participated in this study, where it came from, give them evidence because the more evidence that comes with a kind of credible, credible connotation. Uh, the more effective it's going to be. Oh, wow, that's and the, a good tip. And the more we deliver it too, because we can do it. A lot of the strategies we started off with were print media campaigns, and they're still important because they still see, young people still see a lot of print media where they go here and there and so forth. But a lot of it can, it can be and is digital now as well. But but we not in addition to that, we can bring these messages into curriculum infusion, 
um, teachers can be uh, uh, providing this in their uh, examples in their math classes or in their health classes or in their, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, social, uh, even sociology courses that are in in high schools now and so forth. They can be giving these messages in, in as examples in what they do and teach. In, and uh, instead of sometimes teachers and faculty are uh, perversely contributing the misperception, they may say, they may positively say, oh, uh, you know, this is a big weekend, I know, but um, your assignment is going to be due on Monday anyway, I'm going to um, maintain that or I'm going to take attendance or all these kinds of things, which might be a good thing to, to sort of help divert some of the risk behavior. Right. But, the but then part, you'd be like, I'd be the kid. It's like, oh, I wasn't invited to any party, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But what often happened was that that, that somebody will say, I know you're you're all going to go out there and whatever age level and so forth. I know you're all going to go out there and do this this weekend, but it's due anyway on Monday. That contributes to the misperception because the majority aren't going to go do that. And we also know that with with uh, not just survey research, but we know it with um, uh, breathalyzer testing, for example. Uh, you know, anonymous breathalyzer testing. Uh, in we've done that in our own institution. Other college institutions have done this late night, coming home and testing. Uh, you know, and having the data about uh, you know the majorities aren't engaging in the risk behavior, and and it's done sometimes in in uh, high school populations as well. Although there's a little more uh, complication with that. In terms of parent, parental permissions, but the, the 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 biological evidence, in other words, is is on the side of the majorities are exhibiting positive behavior. But now, because, if, if is this is yeah. is that even realistic? I mean, we are inundated with multi-billion-dollar industries who are pushing the you know the opposite information for profit, whether mm -hmm. it's for alcohol or marijuana, um, and and other drugs. I mean, do we we don't have the bandwidth to con to give the right message all the time? Well, okay. The, uh, two responses to that. One, let me just add an additional caveat. You know, I was saying the cultural level. There's the ads. There's the entertainment industry, and then there's the 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 industries that provide the products and so forth, uh, doing ads and so forth, as you're suggesting, and those are all contributing to the misperception. But as I said, the news does it as well, and and um, prevention agencies that are promoting how you know with it with their messages about how how large and how many youth are engaging in this and the problem and so forth actually inadvertently they're contributing to the misperceptions as well so it's not just the problem of of the uh, commercial industries although I I certainly sure. am not disagreeing with you. But having said that, the the evidence is in is in uh, the work that does that yeah. does take this strategy because the prevention groups now. are in a there. I mean, there's a double edged sword. They need to show that there's a problem, otherwise they won't get funding to deal with the problem, right? So they have that right. audience exactly. On, and on the other hand, when they're when they're advertising their prevention mess message to youth, they need to use the positive. Yeah, it's whatever the target population is, needs to get the information about the positive majorities. Yes, the re the research and data you collect in for a needs assessment and wanting to get support, uh, totally appreciate uh, that we can uh, demonstrate that and make that clearly and want to talk about that. But if we're trying to make changes among the target population, right. we need to give them the, the positive majority of information. And, and your question about, well, is it possible given all of this? Well, yes, it is. We do have evidence. I mean, prevention work is hard and 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 it's difficult. And much and most prevention work out there doesn't show any positive effect at all, or it's it's minuscule. We do have social norms interventions that do show positive effect. And um and in a variety of forms, in in social media, uh, media campaigns that have been conducted with social norms messages, also experiments being run with what is called um, personalized normative feedback, where online youth will be um, uh, uh, shown uh, what what the actual norms are, and they may, or they may punch in ahead of time what they're doing, and 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 then what comes up on the screen compares themselves. To what the rest of their pop youth or uh, young adult population looks like, and when that happens, 
uh, it either affirms what they're doing, if they're doing the right thing, or it creates a cognitive dissonance because they thought everybody was with them uh, in, in engaging in the high-risk That high sounds behavior. really cool. Can you share such a link with me? Um, sure. A lot of work that's been do being do done uh, with that kind of thing. Um, a, a, a colleague who's a psychologist, uh, Clayton Neighbors, and many others, too, uh, have been doing this. There are reviews out there of, of scores of studies now on um, what they call brief interventions but the, uh, the, and, and their effectiveness. But the key element in their effectiveness is whether it's a counselor sharing information, saying rather than saying, you've got a problem, saying, well, you know, what do you do or what do you think? Uh, um, but here's what here's what the evidence is about what uh, what most uh, people in your your category uh, do or think. And where do you fit in? It's not pronouncing the judgment on them, but letting them see where they fit. And you can do that in counseling situations or in computer simulations you know, or in, in poster signs, if, but, you know, it more personalized if, if they've said what they do or think, and then you can superimpose that over against the, 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 the dominant uh, normative distribution, that, that can be a, a very effective strategy. So there are these brief interventions and what's called personal normative feedback. They're all based on the, the key element that works is based on the underlying social norms principle. Of let's tell people the truth about the population and let them see how where they stand within it and uh, and uh, also challenge produce some cognitive dissonance uh, there about the, what they thought was the case versus what really is. I love that. I could see an app where you you know download an app and you go through you know little questions about yourselves and you. And the, and the social norms pops up for you. That sounds really yeah. cool. Yeah, we've done that. And we've done that in uh, when we've done surveys of, let's say, student athletes. Um, and we have already collected the data, but we and we know what the patterns are going to be. But maybe next year we do the study again. And at the end of the survey, uh, we say, before you leave the survey, let's say they're doing it online. Before you leave the survey, here's here's some information about how what how, what you said and how that fits in with the larger population of student athletes which is their kind of peer group and so forth and then they can see what they said from that very survey they just took in comparison with what student athletes in previous rounds of this survey have said in a way to make this point quite vivid to them that is very cool so yeah. stacy has another question okay. and what are the uh, social norms that we should be promoting today and we we talked a little bit about that like alcohol and drugs but what are some key things you know in 2023 that we should be um promoting well uh, in 2023 uh, one of the things we're talking about you raised is this question about fentanyl which is a trickier one because uh, much of the, the the problem the overdose is not through intended use but but you know they may eat eat, eat some candy or or use something something they thought was another substance and it has fentanyl in it and so forth. But getting the message out that that most youth do not use um, uh, uh, non uh, use, sorry most use do not use even prescription drugs that are not prescribed to them. Non uh, use of non prescription prescribed dr prescription drugs. I'm tripping over my words on that, but uh, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, that most most youth don't do that and think it's a bad thing to do. Um, but uh, but of course there are pills that are shared. And uh, are you saying instead of saying don't use like this is what I do, and I'm I'm thinking maybe I need to change my language. I say don't use a medication um, that's not prescribed for you with your name. It could be dangerous. Um, I I'll say there's no safe drug supply unless you buy it, you know, from pharmacy with your name on it. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that the message should be changed to say most people don't do this? But then can you add because X Y Z? Yeah, I'm saying that. Um... I'm saying that maybe start off with that message. And then it's not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to educate people that the, 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 of the, how certain drugs might be embedded in other medicines they're taking or they think are medicines and so forth. And, it, it, and the kinds of things you're saying 
in some sense uh, and in some contexts, we have to give that information to some extent. But the key element, but to assume that's going to change their behavior, um, yeah, you know, if they think, oh, then most of the kids that I know don't have that the, those kind of uh, the pills that we all share pills and and we're okay and that that's not a problem and you can say well it is a problem but the more important thing I think is starting the message off is we know that most kids don't share pills don't take pills that are not prescribed to them and they don't think that others should as well and this message. is why they do that and then you can uh, say what you just said it's it's cup at least coupling the normative message with with the warning or uh, stating the normative message first so that 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 is gets clear and 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 perhaps educate them along the way about why it's a good thing that the majority don't do this right um and what about the kids who have experimented or misused on occasion does that social norm still apply to that population well the the, the those who have used on uh, on an occasion, they're still interacting with and involved with uh, the rest of the youth in the community or in the school and so forth. And yes, they may hang out with two or three other kids who are doing it as well. I'm not saying the most immediate peers aren't a, a powerful influence, but that being said, work with what you've got, which is the power of the overall norm. And there, in many instances, they are with others and some of the kids who are who are in those close knit or, or smaller groups where most of them are using some of them don't want to be using but they don't have the kind of mental strength if you will to not use and what we're talking about here is let's let's take the power of the social norm and use it in a pause, use it in an effective way, give them that information. So those that are on the edge of that group doing it once in a while can, uh, can if you will, peel away because they, they, they start to understand that the majority of the kids don't want and like that. And then the ones who are using frequently, um, well, it may have it may directly detour them in terms of when they find out they're not the center of the bell curve and most others don't think it it's cool when they do that it may deter them but even if it doesn't even if it doesn't um then they're less likely i would argue to do it publicly to do it in in larger groups and 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 show it off and brag about it so in other words another that those things that create the misperceptions, those people who are extreme being very public and bragging about it, that phenomenon is being reduced. It they may they may continue to do it, but they're not going to be as public and bragging about it, which will help others who are on the fringe not mm -hmm. get involved. Right. That's a good point. Um so can you give us some examples of of social north campaigns that have evidence base that were effective, that you know that this was applied to this population and it decreased use drug or alcohol and, and or prevented it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, well, it, it, if, at my own, uh, I mean, it, it, we've got examples at all kinds of levels. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we we published. I'm just talking about from from my own research. For example, mm -hmm. we at a middle school we were doing one on bullying, for example, and uh, it's published in um, uh, interpersonal group processes, the journal uh, that uh, showed that when we would intervene in a school with messages about most of uh, don't don't engage in bullying, they don't support the bullying and so forth, the, the actual bullying, the perpetrating, the reports of, of, of being victims and, uh, and so forth, as well as the reports of perpetration went down. And those schools who did more of the messaging had, it, there was almost a perfect correlation between how much messaging they did about the norm and how much effect they got. And so forth. Uh, that's just one example uh, among many. Uh, in college populations, we have a number of studies out there, several studies out there 
uh, that uh, show, including in my own institution. I've done it with students in general and with student athletes, where we flood the the um, the, the public space with messages about the actual norms. We do curriculum infusion. We uh, and um, you can even bring it into um, um, peer interventions where peers talk about the positive norms. So. Uh, with athletes, we were doing it with peer mentors and so forth. And I have published articles about that in uh, journal studies on um, alcohol, Journal of American College Health and so forth. Um, and I can give you, uh, the, my website will take you to a lot of examples of, of published articles that show positive effect. I mentioned that the personalized normative effect that goes on, um, Clayton Neighbors and others who are doing that kind of thing, have a, many, many publications out there demonstrating this. Um, also, we have um, an article that we did that um, was uh, in the state of Montana, doing it with uh, targeting um, young adults 21 to 35 in drinking and driving and uh, comparing counties where we intervened and gave uh, the message out about most young adults don't drink and drive and the actual statistical facts that four out of five don't engage in that kind of behavior. Yes, it's sure, it's terrible that one out of five do, but the importance is the message that four out of five are not. Um, and when we did that, the counties that um, were, were getting uh, a strong message, um, they their perceptions began to change about what others typically did. The perceived norm began to go down about, about others typically drink and drive. And um, and um, their actual practice, their use of designated drivers went down. And we even looked at crash data that that showed there was a difference between the, the counties with and without the intervention. And that's published uh, in, um, uh, let's see, the Addictive Behaviors, I believe it is, uh, the Journal of Addictive Behaviors. But are, uh, are I'm, there just, I'm just throwing out a couple there. There's lots of studies there's now. A lot. There. Is, is yeah. there... Um... Is there a place to go where people working in prevention um, can go and and use some of these programs? So I had a podcast with um, Blueprints for Healthy Youth Approach. I don't know if you're familiar with them, where they have, um, you can go and purchase and apply some of these evidence-based prevention. I don't know if they all of them use the social norm theory. But is there is there a place to go to say you know I, I need a social norm approach for um, fentanyl for marijuana where do I where do I capture that or do we have to kind of build our own based on these principles? Um, there 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 are many sites out there and and actually my websites can take you to those other sites and and, and on our site we have examples of the principles we uh, um, it, not necessarily with fentanyl yet because that's something that's being developed. The ADAPT program that you mentioned that where you, I think that you first uh, heard me talk um, yeah. is is uh, really focused on uh, trying to address this and using a um, social norms point of, of view as well. But with regard to other the other uh, substances and so forth, um, yes, uh, there's lots of, uh, we have a guidebook that's uh, free and available on our on our site. Um, with and there's a social norms primer section where you can see example articles. We have catalogs of example media and so forth for use in a variety of different populations that are directly available. And and it also links to other sites and other programs that are using this strategy. Uh, it's alcoholeducationproject.org and youthhealthsafety.org are two sites where we catalog and give examples and give references to publications and so forth. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Okay. So primary prevention, very important. I'm sure that you are a, a fan. This is one approach, right? A, a, there's different approaches to primary prevention. This is one that's evidence-based as you've given us all the different studies that show that this is important in, in preventing unwanted behavior by uh, promoting the positive behavior that most people are engaged in. It's basically, it's it's the sim most simple message I can say is, uh, let's tell the people the truth. The truth, uh, you know, will make you healthy and keep you healthy. Um, but it, it's a spin on what, uh, if not a spin in a sense of misleading, but it's a different way of thinking about the truth. 
that is the truth about the, the positive majorities. Let's use that to engage in prevention because for one thing, it's readily available. The truth, the truth about the positive majorities are readily available if we actually look at the data from that perspective and turn it into positive messages. Yeah, thank you so much. That is, and it, it is a different approach than, than many of us have been doing. I think it's important. I'm gonna definitely try to implement that in my work as well. I wanna say thank you to Stacy for your work in uh, primary prevention teaching youth, making a better, healthy future for all of us, constantly wanting to learn and do better in, in work and inspiring a conversation as we're having today. Thank you, Stacey and Dr. Wes Perkins. Thank you so much for the social norm theory, important education and prevention and the valuable resources that you have uh, given us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I love talking about it, as I hope you see. It's something that you don't burn out. I tell uh, prevention workers, when you're talking about something that's positive and it works, uh, burnout uh, is much less likely. So I, I continue to be excited about it. Glad you invited me. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth's producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.